0: Chapter twenty two of Olive. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Olive by Dinah Maria Craig. Chapter twenty two. Perhaps, ere following Olive's fortunes, it may be as well to set the reader's mind at rest concerning the incident narrated in the preceding chapter. It turned out the olden tale of passion, misery, and death. No more could be made of it, even by the imaginative Miss Meliora. A few words will comprise all that she discovered. Returning faithfully the next day, the kind little woman found that the object of her charity needed it no more. In the night suddenly it was thought the spirit had departed. There was no friend to arrange anything, so Miss Vanbrugh undertook it all. Her own unobtrusive benevolence prevented a pauper funeral. But in examining the few relics of the deceased she was surprised to find papers which clearly explained the fact that some years before there had been placed in a London bank, to the credit of Celia Manners, a sum sufficient to produce a moderate annuity. The woman had rejected it and starved. But she had not died without leaving a written injunction that it should be claimed by the child crystal, since it was her right. This was accomplished, to the great satisfaction of Miss Vanbrugh and of the honest banker, who knew that the man—what sort of man he had quite forgotten who deposited the money, had enjoined that it should be paid whenever claimed by Celia or by Crystal Manners. Crystal Manners was then the child's name. Miss Banbra might have thought that this discovery implied the heritage of shame, but for the little girl's obstinate persistence in the tale respecting her unknown father and mother, who were a noble gentleman and grand lady, and had been drowned at sea, The circumstance was by no means improbable, and it had evidently been strongly impressed on Crystal by the woman she called Mamie. Whatever relationship there was between them, it could not be the maternal one. Miss Vanbrugh could not believe in the possibility of a mother thus voluntarily renouncing her own child. Miss Meliora put Crystal to board with an old servant of hers for a few weeks. But there came such reports of the child's daring and unruly temper that, quaking under her responsibility, she decided to send her protégé away to school. The only place she could think of was an old-fashioned pension in Paris, where, during her brother's studies there, her own slender education had been acquired. Thither the little stranger was dispatched, by means of a succession of contrivances which almost drove the simple Meliora crazy. For, lest her little adventure of benevolence should come to Michael's ears—' she dared to take no one into her confidence, not even the Rothsays. Madame Blandin, the mistress of the pension, was furnished with no explanations, indeed there were none to give. The orphan appeared there under the character she so steadily sustained, as Miss Crystal Manners, the child of illustrious parents lost at sea, and so she vanished altogether from the atmosphere of Woodford Cottage. Olive Rothsay was now straining every nerve towards the completion of her first exhibited picture— a momentous crisis in every young artist's life. It was March, always a pleasant month in this mild sheltered neighbourhood where she had made her home. There, of all the regions about London, the leaves come earliest, the larks soonest begin to sing, and the first soft spring breezes blow. But nothing could allure Olive from that corner of their large drawing-room which she had made her studio, and where she sat painting from early morning until daylight was spent. The artist herself formed no unpleasing picture, at least so her fond mother often thought, as Olive stood before her easel, the light from the half-closed-up window slanting downwards on her long curls, of that rare pale gold, the delight of the ancient painters, and now the especial admiration of Michael Vanbrugh. To please her master, Olive, though now a woman grown, wore her hair still in childish fashion, falling in most artistic confusion over her neck and shoulders. It seemed that nature had bestowed on her this great beauty, in order to veil that defect which, though made far less apparent by her maturer growth, and a certain art in dress, could never be removed. Still there was an inexpressible charm in her purely outlined features, to which the complexion always accompanying pale gold hair imparted such a delicate spiritual colouring. Oftentimes her mother sat and looked at her, thinking she beheld the very likeness of the angel in her dream. March was nearly past. Olive's anxiety that the picture should be finished, and worthily finished, amounted almost to torture. At last, when there was but one week left, a week whose every hour of daylight must be spent in work, the hope and fear were at once terminated by her mother's sudden illness. Passing it was, and not dangerous, but to Olive's picture it brought a fatal interruption. The tender mother more than once begged her to neglect everything but the picture, but Olive refused. Yet it cost her somewhat, ay, more than Mrs. Rothsay could understand, to give up a year's hopes. She felt this the more when came the Monday and Tuesday for sending in pictures to the Academy. Heavily these days passed, for there was not now the attendance on the invalid to occupy Olive's mind. She was called hither and thither all over the house, since on these two days, for the only time in the year, there was at Woodford Cottage a levee of artists, patrons, and connoisseurs. Miss Rothsay was needed everywhere first in the painting-room to assist in arranging its various treasures, her taste and tact assisting Mr. Vanbrugh's artistic skill. For the thousandth time she helped to move the easel that sustained the small purchasable picture, with which Michael this year condescended to favour the Academy, and admired, to the painter's heart's content, the beloved and long-to-be-unsold Alcestis, which extended in solitary grandeur over one whole side of the studio. Then she flitted to Miss Vanbrugh's room to help her dress for this important occasion. Never was there such a proud, happy little woman as Meliora Vanbrugh on the first Monday and Tuesday in April, when at least a dozen carriages usually rolled down the muddy lane, and the great surly dog, kennelled under the mulberry tree, was never silent from morn till dewy eve. All, thought the delighted Meliora, was an ovation to her brother— Each year she fully expected that these visiting patrons would buy up every work of art in the studio, to say nothing of those adorning the hall, the cartoons and frescoes of Michael's long-past youth. And each year, when the carriages rolled away, and the visitants' admiration remained nothing but admiration, she consoled herself with the thought that Michael Vanbrugh was a man before his age, but that his time for appreciation would surely come. So she hoped on till the next April. Happy Meliora! "'Yes, you do seem happy, Miss Vanbrugh,' said Olive, when she had coaxed the stiff, grizzled hair under a neat cap of her own skilful manufacturing, and the painter's little sister was about to mount guard in the bay window of the parlor, from whence she could see the guests walk down the garden, and be also ready to mark the expression of their faces as they came out of the studio. Happy? To be sure I am. Everybody must confess that this last is the best picture Michael ever painted.' his sister had made the same observation every April for twenty years. But, my dear Miss Rothsay, how wrong I am to talk so cheerfully to you when your picture is not finished. Never mind, love, you have been a good attentive daughter and it will end all for the best." Olive smiled faintly and said she knew it would. Perhaps, continued Meliora, as a new and consolatory idea struck her, Perhaps even if you had sent in the picture, it might have been returned, or put in the octagon room, or among the miniatures where nobody could see it, and that would have been much worse, would it not? I suppose so, and indeed I will be quite patient and content. Patient she was, but not content. It was scarcely possible. Nevertheless, she quitted Miss Vanbrugh with smiles, and when she again sought her mother's chamber it was with smiles too or at least with that soft sweetness which was in olive-like a smile. When she had left Mrs. Rothsay to take her afternoon's sleep, she thought what she was to do to pass away the hours that, in spite of herself, dragged very wearily. This day was so different to what she had hoped. No eager delighted last touches to her beloved picture, no exhibiting it in its best light in all the glory of the frame. It lay neglected below, she could not bear to look at it. The day was clear and bright just the sort of day for painting, but Olive felt that the very sight of the poor picture would be more than she could bear. She did not go near it, but put on her bonnet and walked out. "'Courage, hope!' sang the larks to her, high up above the green lanes, but her heart was too sad to hear them. A year, a whole year lost, a whole year to wait for the next hope. And a year seems so long when one has scarcely counted twenty. Afterwards how fast it flies! "'Perhaps,' she said, her thoughts taking their colour from the general weariness of her spirits, "'perhaps Miss Vanbrugh was right, and I might have had the picture returned. It cannot be very good, or it would not have taken such long and constant labour. Genius, they say, never toils. All comes by inspiration. It may be that I have no genius. Well, then, where is the use of my labouring to excel? Indeed, where is the use of my living at all?' Alas, how little is known of the struggles of young, half-formed genius! Struggles not only with the world, but with itself, a hopeless, miserable bearing down, a sense of utter unworthiness and self-contempt. At times, when the inner life, the soul's lamp, burns dimly, there rises the piteous moan, Fool, fool, why strivest thou in vain? Thou hast deceived thyself, thou art no better than any brainless ass that plods through life." and then the world grows so dull and one's life seems so worthless that one would fain blot it out at once. Olive walked beneath this bitter cloud. She said to herself that if her picture had been a work of genius it would have been finished long ere the time, and that if she were destined to be an artist there would not have come this cross. No, all fates were against her. She must be patient and submit, but she felt as if she should never have courage to paint again and now when her work had become the chief aim and joy of her life how hard this seemed she came home drearily enough for the sunny day had changed to rain and she was thoroughly wet but even this was as meliora would have expressed it for the best since it made her feel the sweetness of having a tender mother to take off her dripping garments and smooth her hair and make her sit down before the bright fire and then Olive laid her head in her mother's lap and thought how wrong, nay, wicked she had been. She was thinking thus, even with a few quiet tears, when Miss Meliora burst like a stream of sunshine into the room. Good news! Good news! What? Mr. Vanbrugh has sold his picture, as you hoped, to Mr.—No, not yet! And the least possible shadow troubled the sister's face. But perhaps he will. And meanwhile, what think you?— "'Something has happened quite as good, at least for somebody else. "'Guess.' "'Indeed I cannot.' "'He has sold yours.' Olive's face flushed, grew white, and then she welcomed this first success, as many another young aspirant to fame has done by bursting into tears. So did the easily-touched Mrs. Rothsay, and so did the kind Miss Meliora from pure sympathy. Never was good fortune hailed in a more lachrymose fashion.' But soon Miss Vanbrugh, resuming her smiles, explained how she had placed Olive's nearly finished picture in her brother's studio, where all the visitors had admired it, and one, a good friend to art and to young struggling artists, had bought it. My brother managed all, even to the payment, the full price you will have when you have completed the picture, and meanwhile, look here. She had filled one hand with golden guineas, and now poured a Danai stream into Olive's lap, Then, laughing and skipping about like a child, she vanished, the beneficent little fairy, as swiftly as Cinderella's godmother. Olive sat mute, her eyes fixed on the bits of shining gold which seemed to look different to all other pieces of gold that she had ever seen. She touched them, as if half-fearing they would melt away, or, like elfin money, change into withered leaves. Then, brightly smiling, she took them up, one by one, and told them into her mother's lap. Take them, darling, my first earnings, and kiss me, kiss your happy little girl. How sweet was that moment, worth whole years of after fame. Olive Rothsay might live to bathe in the sunshine of renown, to hear behind her the murmur of a world's praise, but she never could know again the bliss of laying at her mother's feet the first fruits of her genius, and winning, as its first and best reward, her mother's proud and happy kiss. You will be quite rich now, my child, "'We will be,' said Olive, softly. "'And to think that such a great connoisseur as Mr... should choose my Olive's picture. Ah, she will be a celebrated woman some time. I always thought she would.' "'I will,' said the firm voice in Olive's heart, as, roused to enthusiasm by this sweet first success, she felt stirring within her the spirit whose pulses she could not mistake—woman, nay, girl, as she was. Thinking on her future— the future that, with heaven's blessing, she would nobly work out, her eye dilated and her breast heaved. And then on that wildly heaving bosom strayed a soft, warm hand, a tender voice whispered, "'My child!' and Olive, flinging her arms round her mother's neck, hid her face there, and was a simple, trembling child once more. It was a very happy evening for them both, almost the happiest in their lives." The mother formed a score of plans of expending this newly-won wealth, always to the winner's benefit solely, but Olive began to look grave, and at last said, timidly, "Mamma, indeed, I want for nothing, and for this money, let us spend it in a way that will make us both most content. Oh, mother, I can know no rest until we have paid Mr. Gwynne. The mother sighed. "'Well, love, as you will. It is yours, you know, only a little it pains me that my child's precious earnings should go to pay that cruel debt. But not that they should go to redeem my father's honor," said Olive, still gently. She had her will. When her picture was finished and its price received, Olive, with a joyful heart, enclosed the sum to their long-silent creditor. "'His name does not look quite so fearful now,' she said, smiling, when she was addressing the letter. I can positively write it without trembling, and perhaps I may not have to write it many times. If I grow very rich, Mamma, we shall soon pay off this debt, and then we shall never hear any more of Harold Gwynne. Oh, how happy that would be!" The letter went, and an answer arrived in due form, not to Mrs. but to Miss Rothsay. "'Madam, I thank you for your letter, and have pleasure in cancelling a portion of my claim. I would fain cancel the whole of it, but I must not sacrifice my own household to that of strangers. Allow me to express my deep respect for a child so honorably jealous over a father's memory, and to subscribe myself, your very obedient Harold Gwynne. "'He is not so stony-hearted after all, Mamma," said Olive, smiling. "'Shall I put this letter with the other? We had better keep them both.' "'Certainly, my dear. Look, the envelope is edged and sealed with black.' is it? Oh, perhaps he has lost his mother. I think I once heard your poor papa say he knew her once. She must be now an old woman. Still her loss has probably been a grief to her son. Most likely,' said Olive hastily. She never could bear to hear of any one's mother dying. It made her feel compassionately even towards Mr. Gwynne, and then she quickly changed the subject. The two letters were put by in her desk, and thus, for a season at least, the Harbury Correspondence closed." End of chapter 22